20,000 years ago In winds of jasper Heavy stone wood against the stone Air open past her She watched as you came falling Through air where you were bare Closing on both her hands You were in bound This is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I am Andres Fabulakis. On this episode, we're going to continue our countdown of the top Oscar films uh, from 1948 to 1957, uh, where we sort of go back and forth and talk about uh, which ones we think are the best and we rank them. In episode one... Uh, as I'm sure you all remember, we, uh, we started out with, uh, 10th place, which was the greatest show on earth, uh, then around the world in 80 days and from here to eternity. And then for the first time ever so far, we had a tie with an American in Paris in Marty. Uh, those, these films ranged from really good to somewhat bad, but I think this episode is going to be even better where frankly, uh, all five of these films can probably be interchangeable. Uh, do you feel the same way with that? Where, like, if 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 I told you that the outcome was slightly differently, would you have been shocked? Yeah, I mean, this top five that we have here, I feel awful because I feel like I'm not being a, a professional here when I've given so many films a ten out of ten. But that's that's just where we are, and I think we're going to get a similar result when we reach the seventies. But for now, we've reached we've reached an area where I guess when we combined both of our lists, you know, if any of them were, were swapped around, you know, I, I'd be okay with it, you know. But if something like The Greatest Show on Earth somehow ended up up here, then I would have been surprised. But uh, aside from that, no, we've got we've got a very very solid top five here where. I mean, goodness, just let's let's dive right in, shall we? I mean, we've got we've got some absolute classics coming our way. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'll uh, I guess I'll, I'll start off with the very first one coming in at number five uh, is Lawrence Olivier's Hamlet, which I, I think everyone is pretty familiar with the story. This is a Shakespearean play that you pretty much usually had to read in high school. But in case you managed to successfully skip uh, a grade. Um, it, it's about uh, a young prince who is struggling after the death of his father, the king, and he starts getting uh, visitations from the ghost of his dead father saying that his uncle, uh, the new king, may have murdered him. So the prince has to sort of uncover what really happened while everyone in the, the story basically is slowly or very quickly going insane. Um, and it has a, a pretty interesting climax to it as well. Uh, this is a film that was directed by Laurence Olivier while also starring Laurence Olivier, who is sort of famous for being quite possibly the best Shakespearean and one of the greatest stage actors of all time. And here he is translating all of that onto screen while also, you know, being behind the camera as well and making a real masterpiece of a work. Um, 
it's hard to even sort of go into everything that this film does right. Uh, I think one of the most clever things is in, in Shakespearean plays, they have what's called soliloquies, which is basically a monologue that uh, only the person saying it can hear. So you're basically speaking your thoughts. So in plays, the way they'll do it is the actor will walk over to the side of the stage and talk to the audience while the other actors, characters can't hear this person. And Olivier sort of did a clever way of doing it by making the soliloquies voiceovers. So instead of him, you know, talking about, oh, what should I do? How, how do I, what do I plot next? How do I proceed? All these things. You see him acting it with just his facial expressions while also simultaneously narrating what's going on inside his head, which is a pretty mind-blowing thing to see because of how well acted those moments are and, and like these are only the like the, the minor things the um, the ghost scenes are shot like a horror film which completely differs from the rest of it which is much more of a i don't want to say a thriller but it definitely has almost some um, noirish tendencies to the way it's uh, structured but the the ghost scenes with his father it might have been because of uh, a lack of available technology so they decide to hide the ghosts mostly in fog, but it works because it's, I don't want to say it's actually terrifying, but you know, it's, it's borderline on being actually scary. Um, what are some of your, your thoughts on how it went? Well, yeah, the, the whole introduction of the ghost and the revelation of the ghost sequences, um, that was a big point for me too, because not only is it so well done, I mean, that voice is so booming and terrifying. I, oh my goodness. It was done so well, especially for its time. I was thoroughly impressed, but I love the fact that it happened so early on enough that it hooks you into the movie. Cause a lot of people would think Shakespeare nowadays, sadly, and go, Oh, he's boring at the stadium in school. But if I was a teacher and I showed this to, to my class, guaranteed people would be, pretty much hooked just on that alone and they'd want to they'd want to believe it they'd want to believe that that they're seeing this ghost as well like okay hamlet we, we believe you what are you saying we don't think you're insane everybody else thinks you're insane but let's let's follow this person because we saw this too and it was believable if it was some like guy on like strings floating or whatever you know it'd be a different story but this was this was highly believable and i love i love how olivier directed the descendant of one psyche where you see a lot of these overlaying shots of the spiral staircases you'd see in a castle um, overlapping each other. And, you know, in theory, you know, it's, you're just going up the spiral staircase. That's all it is. But in this, it plays so well psychologically because you feel like you're going up and down and up and down and you're going into spiraling madness that, that Hamlet himself is going into it's so well shot. The use of shadows is terrific to make this a borderline gothic picture. You have um, his use of modernizing, let's say, the Shakespearean text. So it's a lot more understandable for, for the audience. Like if you're newer to Shakespeare, you know, he made it as accessible as possible while still showing his love of Shakespeare and diving right into the crooks of what Shakespeare is trying to get at. Now, I know there was a massive controversy and you've studied acting and I know you're probably way in, more into Shakespeare than I am now. How did you feel that there was this removal of two 
let's let's say highly important characters. I think personally, because I've studied Hamlet before, I think it was a very conscious decision that Olivier himself made. But I know that a lot of people might disagree. What did you think about that? You're talking about the removal of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Yes. Okay. Uh, for those that don't know, the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are they're part comedic relief, but they're also part. Um, of a way to sort of explain the backstory to the audience. Um, and they're completely omitted and not even give their lines aren't even given to someone else. They're just basically skipped over their scenes. Uh, at first it was bugging me because I really enjoy Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. I've seen the play a few times and they're always an entertaining aspect, but it sort of, it gives the film a much more serious tone. And by doing so, I think it achieves more of what Olivier wanted without as many um, comedic relief moments. Uh, the comedic relief instead comes through uh, Olivier's wit as Hamlet, where he would make uh, snide one-liner cracks about people um, that are more like death by a thousand paper cuts than, than real insult, or it's like... At first, you're like, huh, that's a funny thing to say. Then you realize everything that he's saying is a backhanded compliment that's way more of an insult than anything. Um, and sort of takes a little bit to register, where it's just like, oh, damn, he just said that. Um, that's the king you're talking to there, Hamlet, uh, sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, it, it didn't, at first, it bugged me that they weren't there. But then, I, by the end of it, I completely even forgot that they were supposed to be in the play. So, it didn't really bother me that much. Um, I think there's a great scene where, um, Hamlet is trying to balance pretending to be insane and actually going insane, um, where the camera movements sort of reflect his mental state where the, it gets a little more frenzied as it goes on, but usually only when Hamlet is the only person on screen. When there's other people on screen, he usually is able to keep it together, but when he's alone in his thoughts, that's where things sort of go a little haywire and and things get a little shaky. You know, they're, you're playing more with zooms. It's a little more erratic. And I think that was a pretty fascinating way to, to shoot it. No, absolutely. It was terrifically well done. Just like, just all this movie was actually. And when you, he finally confronts the other actors with, what could be his insanity or his genius because i mean we don't fully know if he's in the right until the very end like that's it. um and he just starts like stabbing random curtains being like who's behind that you know like uh and he's going insane it's it's borderline scary because this whole time you're like you're following this guy you're like okay okay he's a little bit on edge but that's okay as long as he's just crazy with us but when he starts revealing himself like this in front of other people it gets it gets pretty off the rails and he captured that perfectly. It's, I believe it's the only Shakespearean film to have won best picture. Let's, let's push aside Shakespeare in love. Cause I don't consider that a Shakespearean film, but you know, for all things considered, cause we've seen some great ones ever since, you know, with Kenneth Branagh behind the camera as well. Um, with all things considered, I think it's probably the best Shakespearean rendition of a, of a play I've, I've seen and it perfectly perfectly captures a psyche it it makes it not even feel like a play like it actually feels like a cinematic project it's 
it's it's a terrific movie. I I absolutely loved it, especially with my first viewing of it. Now, let's let's move the focus from Hamlet because it's not all about him. At number four, it's all about Eve. Now, this is often considered one of the greatest best, best picture winners ever in the general consensus of things, especially on Rotten Tomatoes, where it's the highest rated best picture winner of all time, even above the Godfather films, above Lords of Arabia. It's, it's often considered one of the greater dramatic comedies, especially because of its, its wit, its, let's say, bitchiness to its tone. It's commentary on the film, or well, the film industry through the the theater industry. Let's say, it's written and directed by Joseph Mankiewicz. If that's how you pronounce it, Mankiewicz. Um, Mankiewicz. Okay, then um, I've never had to say his name before. Now, it's it's based on the on the book The Wisdom of Eve by Mary Orr, and it's got a huge stellar cast from veteran actress Betty Davis, newcomer and Baxter. Um, a man we've seen before in Rebecca, George Sanders, who actually won his only Academy Award for this. Um, and you have a whole a whole slew of supporting actresses and actors from Gary Merrill, Selma Ritter, Hugh Marlowe, and even one of the first earliest big performances of Marilyn Monroe. Now, this is an oft-referenced film where you have a veteran actress who has a fan who wants to basically just meet this actress and slowly and surely this, this veteran actress succumbs to this, to this realization that she's got this massive fan. It says, you know what, why don't I bring her on board as an assistant? And it's this slow burning twist of fate where the veteran gets shoved out of the way and the newcomer ends up being the name and lights and it's how the old will always die to the new. And especially at this point in our podcast, bang on 1950, we're getting to the point where, as we said, films are taking more risks. They're, they're changing a little bit from how they were earlier on in, the, in our podcast series, let's say. It's a very bittersweet film because as funny and dry as it is, it's also a highly depressing realization that things, when, when things change, they never revert back. Now, it's a timeless film and it's still acclaimed to this day. And, I, and I'm all thankful for it because I absolutely loved this film. It was hilarious. Brilliant acting. Before I go off on another tangent, have at it. What did you think? <laughs> um... Yeah, I think this is a film where it's largely buoyed by its uh, larger-than-life acting performances. Um, and, and that's sort of saying something because the rest of the film is done so expertly. The way the stories weave in and out. Uh, you know, the movie starts at the very end and then it sort of plays out to see how they got to this. Um, so there's some, some fun tricks with the way it's edited and things like that. Uh, and there's quite a bit of, uh, you know, we're talking about in Hamlet voiceover narration uh, and also 
and uh, in our last episode talked about an American in Paris there's quite a bit of voiceover narration in this where different characters sort of chime in um, with their perspective of how the events are going and right from the get-go George Sanders is the first person that you hear and he's just so sarcastic with the way he's setting up the film that you know you're basically in for a treat the way he's going on uh, and then at least four I think three or four other actors get some narration time as well so it's a pretty interesting one um, I think um, I think Betty Davis's uh, you know honey honey-coated acidic one-liners uh, made the film as famous and as likable as it is but I think outside of that the real star of the show is Anne Baxter, who plays Eve herself, uh, the aspiring actress who uh, sort of it takes quite a while to, to figure out what's going on with her character. But once you do, uh, the slow transition makes even more sense and is, is crafted so beautifully that it, you almost can't see it coming. Um, I was absolutely astounded by Baxter's performance. You know, she starts out so naive and soft and unsure of herself and without confidence. And then by the end of it, she's the one with all the power and doing the power plays, which is, is a pretty fascinating thing to watch. Um, now, I, it seems like you were you were a bigger fan of Betty Davis in this than I was. Not to say that she was bad by any means, but I think she was a little one note. Uh, do you want to give her some love then? Absolutely, I will. I don't. I don't think she was one noted at all. Now, or single noted. I guess that's a better way of saying that. Now, I perfectly agree with Ann Baxter's very slow churning performance. Like we we're not used to seeing a lot of that back then. This huge evolution. Of, of a character over time that's something that's a lot that's something that we see a lot more now and even now it's considered like this very big this very big um rejuvenating thing where it's like oh you see breaking bad it's like oh look at this man go from this state to that state but you know and baxter did this way back in 1950 so i have no quips against her but in the end i still think that betty davis did the best better job because i don't think she was singular and noticed at all i i think she she played a lot of age behind her like she's been through this industry before she's got the experience and because her life is changing in front of her she doesn't know how else to react apart from barking orders or apart from delivering her her arguments and her insults as if they were paged. To me, she is a theater actress who had to live on the stage because she had nowhere else in the world. And now that she's being thrown off the stage, she doesn't know how else to react. And to me, it wasn't like a schlocky performance, like she was overacting because of it. It was very believable because she just... I truly believe that she didn't know how else to live other than being on the stage. And whereas you see all sorts of dimensions Stan Baxter's character, you see, you see an impossible, an, an impossibility to separate one's art from themselves with Betty Davis. And to me, that's heartbreaking, even though she delivers all of these, these snappy lines with such disdain in her face, you know, it comes from a place of hurt. 
And to me, it was truly, truly believable. I don't know. Does that kind of clear it up for you at all? Or no, like I, I'm, I'm agreeing with what you're saying. I just think that um, her, her goals and her structure was laid out pretty clearly from the start. Uh, and didn't really deviate from that, you know. She she shows right from the beginning that she has um, a, a healthy distrust in other people, and that she's full of self doubt, and that she constantly needs to be reassured that she's the greatest. Um, and, and that sort of doesn't really change by the end. She sort of stays the same character. I think the only reason why I prefer Baxter over her is that um, there was there was more of a change. And also, Baxter, I believe, was the real lead uh, because uh, Davis sort of drops off the last third of the movie. It stops being about her story at all. Well, it's all about Eve. So... Um, that, that's basically it. And I love that it cleverly does that because in the end, Anne Baxter wins, even though she's not the sweetheart that we kind of thought that she would be. She ended up being a lying, conniving, borderline sociopath. Now, the fact that the movie succumbs to that, I mean, I, I think, I think is, is terrific. So, as much as I love Betty Davis, I, I do agree that Anne Baxter was sensational herself. In fact, pretty much most of the cast was, I have to say. Now, speaking of somebody who was genuine, whose fame, let's say, corrupted them, do you want to go into our third film, which was probably the biggest surprise for us both? Yeah. Uh, in 1949 was All the King's Men, and it's about the rise and fall of a corrupt politician who makes his friends richer and retains power by dint of a populist appeal. It was directed by Robert Rawson, uh, and it stars Broderick Crawford, John Ireland, and Joanne Drew, among some others. And uh, this was a film where I went in not knowing very much about it. I know that it was remade a few years ago with Sean Penn, and it was absolutely destroyed by critics. Um, <laughs> and this is a, a pretty fascinating film. I I loved it quite a lot. Um, this ended up being, I think, uh, my second highest film of the group. Um, obviously, going down to number three isn't that much of a change, but still, um, you know, it... It starts out, and for the first half of the movie, uh, the, this main politician, he's just such an honest, good, hard-working guy that you can't see how anyone would not want to vote for him. And by the end of it, what a despicable disgrace of a human being he has become. And basically, no one in this movie came out clean. Everyone got their hands dirty. Everyone was affected by it. It was like a tornado of insanity and madness that sort of swept through everyone where everyone had uh, some sort of, I don't want to say vice in the sense of, you know, drinking, smoking, gambling, but a vice of which way to be the worst type of human being possible. Uh, no one, no one in this film is likable by the end of it. Not even the so-called good guys. Uh, did did you find that anyone was likable by the end, or do you agree with me? Uh, to an extent, I think. I think you had to kind of like somebody just so you can 
put up with these people. So for me, that was John Ireland's character who had a great evolution, I would say, throughout the film as well. But no, on paper, everybody was pretty despicable. I mean, even those who you had to kind of feel sorry for, like Willie Stark's son's character who um, suffers an unfortunate fate, let's say, in the film. Even he's really snotty when when he talks about his dad or whatever, which I understand because he's upset that his father became this corrupt politician, but virtually everybody either has dirt on them, which is a big theme of the movie that everybody's hands are dirty, whether they admit it or not, or they just ended up being bitter and, and unlikable. So I think, I think that was the real, what made the film work so well was the fact that, Everyone was such an unlikable person, but that didn't make you stop enjoying the film or stop caring about the characters. Because a lot of time when there's someone that's an unlikable character, you stop caring about their story entirely. Whereas this is the complete opposite, that the more the more dirt that they do or gets dug up or the more evil things that happen, the more fascinating you want to see. Like normally you would compare it to something like a, a car crash where you, you can't stop staring, but it really is that way where, you know, you're waiting to see who is going to one up the next person for being a more despicable person. Absolutely. Now, speaking of winning up, I am absolutely shocked that this movie got made in 1949 because we've seen noir films before, especially like the last weekend where that kind of ends optimistically. Like, okay, let's, Let's bring out the hero from the depths of darkness and let's fix this. All the King's Men, 1949, ends off with an absolutely shocking ending where, again, basically everybody's everybody's their own kind of monster. So when you see this cesspool kind of an ending where basically there's an assassination that carries out and... You know, the main character played terrifically by Broderick Crawford. And I, I think you're in agreement here when we both say that uh, he was one of the best performances of, of this podcast era. Uh, when his body drops to the floor and there's just nothing but gunfire everywhere, I didn't expect that at all. I was completely floored, especially from, like, I know it was at the cusp of the 40s, like just barely it within the 40s. But I was astonished that this film got away with that at all. I mean, never mind the fact that it was basically taking shots at all sorts of industries with corrupt power, including the film industry. But the fact that it got away with such an ending, I, I, like I know it was in the book and everything, but just it wasn't even just out from out of nowhere. It was shot well. The pacing up to that point. I didn't even realize I was le being led to a point like that, but it was perfect. Just what a sensational ending. Uh, that's probably one of the best endings I've had to watch for this, for this entire project so far. I mean, it was absolutely captivating. And I think you'd agree with me there. Yeah. And like, I think we're like, we're talking about, all this stuff that's happening, but like, really, this is only the second half of the film. I think we're almost like glossing over the fact of what an optimistic first act this film has and outlook on politics. Like, I feel, 
the movie thematically sort of goes uh, from the Grapes of Wrath, where it's very optimistic outlook of, you know, rising up against the man sort of thing, to Citizen Kane as far as the political aspirations go. And then by the end of it, it's basically like Touch of Evil, where you feel like you're losing your mind as well with all the craziness that's going on and corruption and you can't tell who's the good guy anymore because the guy that was supposed to be good wasn't really like the probably the the best liked person in the end is a murderer the the second best liked person the judge turns out he has a secret as well and he kills himself like no yeah. one it's like i guess the best analogy to use like this is uh people have dirty hands so they try to wash it off using mud yep no that's that's exactly what this movie is and again it was a big surprise because i haven't heard much about this movie at all i know the book was well acclaimed and there was that awful remake i, I do know of that but I didn't know much about this movie going in, but good lord, even if you're not into political films, like this doesn't even feel like that. It's not a single second of it is boring. As you said, the beginning of it is uplifting and optimistic. You want to follow this man, and then you feel so, so filthy for doing so. And you were conned just like everybody else. It was absolutely, absolutely terrific, and a very shocking film again. I, I, I didn't expect any of this from that. Now, our number two film, a little bit less shocking because this is one of the most acclaimed films of all time. But it's almost as every bit political as All the King's Men was. But this happens on the waterfront. It was, it was directed by Ilya Kazan, and it stars with probably one of the most acclaimed performances of all time, Marlon Brando. And it has a, a really, really good supporting cast, which features Carl Malden, Eva Marie Saint in her first role, which she actually won an Academy Award for, Rod Steiger, Lee, Lee J. Cobb, and more. So this is basically about how the mob affected the blue-collar work, I guess, on the waterfront with, with the boating and, and the shipments. Um, in in the yard and how the mob basically affected all of that with um with let's say how certain decisions were being made and who was working and who wasn't um people mysteriously being killed off and suddenly you have you have a, a minister played by Colin Malden who basically says enough, we can't take this anymore, we've got to look into this. And you see how the white collar, in the, in the religious sense, tries to, try, tries to understand the brutality of the blue collar, which is being run by, you know, the upper hand, black leather gloves of the mob. Now you have um, Marlon Brando as a former boxer who basically lost his career because he was persuaded by the mob who promised him a better life that here he is on the waterfront and kind of like marty in a sense where it's these two people who are kind of considered outcasts he finds something with the goody two shoes church going even marie saint character Edie doyle and basically it's trying to find humanity in a world full of disgrace and lies and thievery so um 
this is our number two. Obviously, I'm guessing you've seen this movie before, right? Yeah, this was one of the ones that I, I had seen before. I'd seen three of them, and, and this was one I was very excited about revisiting because I think the first time I watched it, it wasn't a very good copy, so it was a little hard to, to hear something, some of the lines, because Brando is a very quiet actor in this film. Um, so I was glad I was able to see it again in a much better copy of it as well, so that definitely helped. Um, there, this is a film that's that's loaded with things where you could watch it several times and each time be discovering new and interesting things uh, outside of the main plot. Um Things like those that was pretty interesting was Kazan's use of uh, sometimes having the actors uh, obscured, uh, whether it's you know standing behind things or their face is not to the camera when they're talking, um, or you know only being able to see partial partial sides of their profile, things like that. Adds a real interesting layer of realism because you know in real life you're not always in the perfect view to see everything that you can still understand people when they're standing behind something whereas in movies that's a big no-no you know the actor is front and center and every line is delivered right to the camera except for in this and it really makes it that much more apparent um also one thing that i noticed the first time that i didn't notice the first time around was in the end when Brando is giving his, his famous I could have been a contender speech, he talks about how he's just a bum. And, you know, you think, okay, well, he, he just feels like he's a bum. But in reality, early on in the movie, he's walking, and a homeless guy calls Terry Malloy, Brando's character, a bum. And that's the first time you hear that said. And Brando, right, kind of like his face gets all twisted up, and he goes, why is he calling me a bum? And it's just like this internal struggle of trying to understand that. And from that point on, throughout the movie, he mentions it several more times and other people start calling him that. And then so that way, by the time it gets to this, I could have been a contender and said I'm just a bum speech. It makes so much sense where it's all coming from because this is something that's eating at him. And, you know, for the most part, he doesn't care what other people think. But finally, when someone says something that's already resonating inside of him, how much that outwardly affects him, it's just mind-blowing. This is this is like – this is acting 101. If you want to – like this is probably the first movie you should watch if you want to see what a great acting performance is. Absolutely. And it's not even just acting wise or directing wise. It's also terrific screenwriting wise, because as you said, you notice all of these small idiosyncratic kind of things that you wouldn't have seen back then happening here. Like you want to talk about that. I could have been a contender speech. Let's not forget the fact that in the end, he's the sole contender for the entire waterfront because he's the only one who ends up fighting against the establishment. And that like the whole time you're like, oh, he's a boxable. You don't really see that. Yeah, he gets into a fist fight, but whatever. But in the end, you realize that this whole thing is a boxing ring where instead of with ropes, you're basically on this on this dock with water around you. And the whole the whole time he's fighting, he's fighting with himself. He's fighting with with what's good or what's moral. You know, he's got the church yelling at him. He's got his his coworkers yelling at him. But the whole time he he's fighting, and basically it's more than just I, I threw away that fight. It's I don't know how to how to keep fighting because I I was told once to stop fighting, and I don't know how to keep fighting. To me, that is just so poetically 
defined. I can't, I can't even begin to explain it further than that. And the entire movie is filled with moments like that, where you get moments of wisdom from Carl Malden's character. You get what seems like naivety, but it ends up being innocence through even Marie Saint's character. You get the tortured wisdom from, from Marlon Brando and his self-loathing. You get so many lines and just so many different developments that are it's it's a very very intricate movie and i haven't seen intricacy like this for this project since casablanca so there are many reasons why this movie is a classic the directing the music the acting the screenwriting just everything so as you said it's an absolute treat to revisit and i've only seen it a handful of times but i can't wait to see it even more yeah um i think like you know i want to go back and um touch again on, on Brando a little bit like he's he's being dragged back and forth between you know his brother works for the gang gangsters mobster people um and so he's constantly trying to be kept in line so you have that sort of side of of Brando while at the same time being dragged by um Edie Doyle and the priest played by Carl Malden um who was absolutely fantastic himself uh, to try to do the right thing and make sure, you know, speak out against the injustice on the waterfront. And, you know, for the most part, Brando doesn't really talk about these issues, but, you know, you can see them going on in his head. You know, every time he's around one group or the other, you can see that his allegiances are shifting back and forth. And and all done without words is, is a pretty impressive feat. Um and it's interesting because uh, people keep using the term pigeon, like stool pigeon, as a negative insult. Uh, that's basically their way of saying, like, oh, who's a rat? Who's going to be the pigeon? Whereas Malloy, Terry Malloy Brando's character, owns and races pigeons, and he thinks that they're the greatest animal on earth so every time someone is calling someone a pigeon he's considering that a compliment because these are such great and loyal creatures so that's sort of another way of showing the the disconnect uh between what side he needs to be fighting on absolutely and there are so many reasons why the pigeon is such a, a truly symbolic or symbol well that's tedious a truly great symbol let's say within this film and one of them is, um, it, it's actually shocking that pigeons and doves are virtually the same animal, but they get different treatment just because of their of where they live and, and how they and how they look. Like the dove looks a lot more clean than, than the speckled pigeon. Let's say now, that's that's Brando's character in a nutshell. He's a dove stuck with a, within an industry of pigeons, and he's the shining example that's trying to break out and say, "Hey, look, we all have the capability of being like this. We all have that in." Since let's stop being um, raised by our environment and, and and be individuals. So, so the fact that you've got that, you've got as you said the stool pigeon analogy. You've got his sense of freedom and his his, his needing to flee away. Um, all sorts of representations from just his coop that he has on top of the building. This raggedy coop that could be broken with a with a single punch and it, it will collapse. This fragility. Just that alone is so powerful. Never mind everything else within this film. You know, the, the church and what it represents. The actual waterfront and what it represents. The line of work. Where the gang 
and, and the mob hangout within like that back area of that bar, just everything, all of the locations, all of the symbols, just everything. But I think there's a piece of a piece of man-made architecture, let's say, that might have surpassed this because that ended up being our number one. Do you want to go into the three-hour epic that was the only thing that was capable of beating a classic like On the Waterfront? Yeah, uh, The Bridge on the River Kwai from 1957, directed by uh, David Lean, who is another person we're probably going to be hearing from in future episodes. Um, and it's about after settling his differences with the Japanese uh, POW camp commander, a British colonel cooperates to oversee his men's construction of a railway bridge for their captors, while oblivious to a plan by the Allies to destroy it. Um, this is starring Alec Guinness, William Holden, Jack Hawkins. Uh, I'm probably going to not pronounce his name right, but Sesu Hayakawa. Um, <laughs> I'm sure and, that was fine. Yeah, thank you. Um, wow, I don't even know where to begin with this. This is one of those few films, much like Casablanca, where it is so perfect in almost every single way that when you watch other movies, you realize how they all fail miserably. That there is there's not a single thread not left connected, not a single performance that stands out as weak. Everything in this is on point and necessary. No, this was, this is one of the first epics, I would say, that was a Kurosawa-based that we have been blessed with, let's say, in 1957. Um, we'll shortly get to Lawrence of Arabia, which Lean also directed, um, I guess, in the next podcast. I can't wait for that because that's one of my all-time favorites. But the bridge on the River Kwai, I mean, good Lord, I own the copy on Blu-ray. When I watch it, I forget that this is from the 50s. It's not just because it's been restored. The the shots, the panning, the acting, so much of it is so ahead of its time that I, I, I don't even know where to begin. So let's let's try and begin with um with the acting, with the the four, as you said, the the four hugely strong performances. We have Alec Guinness, who, if it wasn't for somebody else, we'll get into later on. Alec Guinness would have been my top performance pick of this of this era because what an absolutely perfect performance. I mean, he plays he plays the main officer, let's say, and he he has to play it with such with such power, but with such deep embedded fear that he's trying not to show, but it leaks enough that we as an audience can see it. You know, he goes through a lot of great ordeals where he's stuck in, in a box as punishment for days on end, boiling. And it's, it's known as the oven, I believe. And he comes out basically limping, but trying to, to march like an officer. Just, I don't even know where to begin with how you know how to do that. I believe he got influence from when his son had polio and he tried to mimic his actions. But either way, just such creativity to the performance. And it felt so deeply real. And and then you have, obviously, a veteran actor like William Holden, who's, I guess, pretty much the main character because it follows his line the most, where he does anything to try and get out of 
get out of this this camp. He he he's been there for long enough. He's had to make enough make up enough lies. He's got to get out of there. And you follow him as both a hero and kind of as a as a turncoat. And the whole time, I I was sucked in with with everything that he was doing. I mean, even when he was doing stuff that I wouldn't fully agree with, like the lying and the manipulation. It was like, okay, you know what? I understand. Holden's got me hooked. It's okay. And halfway through the film, only halfway through, you get to see Jack Hawkins' character, who's a higher-up who tries to persuade Holden's character to have a new line of action and basically go back to the camp and instead of just flee the scene, try and dismantle the establishment. And also quite a, a, a riveting performance by Hawkins, even though he's probably in it the least in terms of the leads. and. Yeah, as as charismatic and and believable as he was, especially when he gets wounded and he believably walks on on a broken ankle and, and limps and and collapses through this huge trek. I think the only person who comes the closest to Alec Guinness's performance is Sisu Hayakawa. I I butchered that more than needed. Who? is ruthless and absolutely terrifying. Do you want to go into his performance a little bit? Yeah, he was stunning as far as being this uh, cruel um, POW camp uh, colonel. Colonel Saito was his name. And he was just absolutely phenomenal as far as being this sort of evil mastermind while at the same time, you know... uh, forced to be under the machinations of his own, you know, uh, superior officers as well to build this bridge. Um, I think there's this great scene where, uh, after, um, after Guinness has finally been released from, uh, what's called the oven, a solitary confinement that he was basically tortured for, for, I don't know, days on end, however long it was weeks, I'm guessing. Um, where he finally goes to have a one-on-one talk with Colonel Saito, uh, and they're having dinner, and, you know, at the start of it, uh, Guinness's Colonel Nicholson is, is very weak and fragile and frail, and uh, is clearly outmatched by Saito, who is uh, domineering and over the top. But then, you know, as Nicholson progresses and sort of reveals his plan of being in charge of building this bridge and not allowing officers to work and how uh, it'll just end up hurting Saito more than anything if uh, he goes on continuing the route that he's gone. Slowly but surely the tables start to turn and you see Saito slowly losing the power and Nicholson is, is gaining it and it's just by the end of it Saito might as well be the prisoner of war because Nicholson is now in control completely. It's just this great role reversal between the two, and it's it's a very reluctant one with that's done without respect either. Uh, that's just fascinating to watch. This movie is all about role reversals, and the symbolic bridge is a very strong one because it's about the back and forth between this mentality and that mentality. You have Holden basically saying i don't want to go back but now i'm forced to go back and once he does go back he wants to be in charge and he wants to take this on basically himself you know you have hawkins character where he's in charge and then he ends up 
you know, submitting himself and saying, okay, you know what? I, I will do it. I was, I was told I'm not, I can't be in complete control here. Let's see how this goes. But the strongest one, as you were saying, is Nicholson's. It's not just because he starts to get the, the upper hand, but because of, again, a really, really, really powerful ending. This movie is pure magic because the ending will make you want to rewatch the movie immediately. It's not just directed fantastically. Basically, what ends up happening is um, Commander Shear is played by Holden and, and Hawkins bring bring a crew with them to try and detonate this bridge that um Nicholson is so hellbent on getting built because he wants he wants it to represent the strength of the British army to say we didn't give up and we didn't create a crappy bridge just to say let's build a bridge so we don't get killed. We want to show that the British army is strong and true and both Shears and and Warden played by Jack Hawkins want to destroy this this bridge. So when they come back and both of their plans go awry. So the the, the, de- the detonating is both discovered and the bridge is is threatened. There's a big cluster of of men attacking each other, both on the same team, killing one another, trying to pr- both preserve the bridge and destroy it. And you get this amazing, amazing, amazing confrontation between both Nicholson and Shears, where they both they both utter you at each other like i didn't expect you to be here or i didn't expect you to be in charge of keeping this bridge alive now the greatest part of this movie which makes it immediately rewatchable even though it's three hours long and it doesn't feel that way is alec guinness basically looking up and saying what have i done that acting is so strong it immediately negates everything he's done before that and it make and just in one line, you truly believe that he regrets having the bridge put up in the first place. Like he suddenly realizes that this is a big, big mistake, and he's got to blow it up himself. That alone cemented the first time I watched this movie years ago. It cemented this movie as a classic for me. And the more you rewatch it, the more you see how detailed it fully is. But that alone is probably one of the greatest scenes in cinema history. I, I will go as far to say that. Yeah, I think it's it's great because at the end, even if logically the destruction of the bridge makes sense, it still hurts to watch because you finally gotten on board with with Colonel Nicholson as far as it being a great morale booster for his for his unit and, and all these sort of things. So you know, it, they mentioned quite rightly that without um, a project. To have uh, the the captains would have the, the the commanding officers would still have to come up with some sort of task so that way they can they can keep their soldiers you know mentally alive still because otherwise if they had nothing to do they would have given up on life very quickly give them something to live for so even though logically it makes sense for the allies to blow up this bridge it still hurts so much when it actually does happen and you know you see the pain that's going through uh, Alec Guinness's mind when this is happening and that he he tries to stop it to a very futile attempt, basically, because in the end, he ends up blowing it up. He ends up blowing it up by being shot to death and falling on the detonator, which is also quite powerful. Um, No, just that whole scene is directed so well. You know, from the very moment Alec Guinness is on the bridge and he notices something is wrong with with the post, and it doesn't feel far-fetched 
this man has observed this bridge for months and months on end, and he is so proud of it and all of its little details. Now, of course, he would notice something is wrong with it as soon as he sees this line that's, that's around the posts of the bridge. So you see that, and you see them slowly uncovering that this is connected to this big detonator that that somebody is trying to blow this up. And it's a slow-burning realization that, that ends off in this massive amount of gunfire splashing in the water with all of these bullets, all this blood seeping everywhere, all these people getting shot to death, all this chaos in a movie that has been three hours of nothing but uniform, solidarity. We're walking in, in this at this pace, at this speed, whistling this same song, even when they're against establishment, nobody's going crazy. They're all standing in unison. This is the only moment where there isn't any conformity at all, and it is a big, big mess that results in a big, massive, much better train crash than The Greatest Show on Earth. No, sorry, Cecil B. DeMille, but this is how it's done. That, that train crash was absolutely beautiful. When you see it going off the bridge, and the second part of the bridge collapsed, is while the trains underneath it just everything about it is a complete beautiful mess just stunning absolutely it's all it's all great and this is this is easily one of the greatest films ever made we're going to take uh, a quick break and when we come back we're going to talk about our awards for uh best of the best just named our our all the top 10 films uh and i think very easily you know we, we like to do these fun little awards if we you know were in charge of the oscars for best picture i think it's pretty cut and dry for both of us the bridge on the river kwai which at this point i i don't even know if there's anything left for me to say other than you know this is this is a near perfect film and anything that isn't perfect i can't see it so um, amazing, amazing job on every facet of the way this was built. So uh, I'm not even going to go into more detail because <laughs> we just we just spent so much time talking about why it was so amazing. Yeah, I'm not going to go into much detail either other than saying if you beat out On the Waterfront and All About Eve and then some of our personal favorites like All the King's Men and Hamlet – You've got to be pretty damn good. So if you haven't seen on the um, the bridge on the river quite yet, sadly I hope you have because we've kind of mentioned everything about it. Um, please do. It is it is one of the first true epics you could see in cinema history. Now, because of that, we can skip on to the next category, which I think we're both in agreement here as well. Um, we've also talked about this heavily, but maybe not as much as. The Bridge on the River Kwai being a great movie. We have Best Actor, which I think we're both in agreement when we say that Marlon Brando and his performance as Terry Malloy in On the Waterfront takes the cake for that. Um, I agree. Uh, that's the same pick for me. 
Perfect. So that's why I was trying to refrain from talking a lot about it before. I w- oh, boy, I was really, really eager to talk about this, but now I've got a chance. So I'll try and keep it short and sweet. I'll try and keep it simple, just like his performance. Everything is done with the infliction on his face. He's the only person at that time to get away with a quiet performance where, you know, he could, he could mumble a little bit like this, but then it still speaks volumes because you know, you understand what he's saying. He's speaking out of purge. He's he's speaking as somebody who's been tossed aside in the world. You know, there's that famous improvised scene where, um, Eva Marie Saint drops her glove and he starts playing with it and putting it on and working it into the scene. And it perfectly, it perfectly represents his character's innocence underneath that rugged exterior and just so many small intricacies with this performance is why this is often considered one of if not the most powerful performance of all time because it's pitch perfect nuanced every line is perfectly delivered just everything about it is detailed and loud through its details and you don't have to scream to do a great performance. And that's that's Marlon Brando in a nutshell. Yeah, everything about about him is is, is fantastic. You know, I'm I'm in the middle of reading a, a biography on his on his acting work, not so much about his personal life, but more about, you know, what he would bring to films and things like that. And it's just so great to to read about the things that he's doing and then see them put in action. And probably this, uh, am I crazy to say that this is probably his best performance? Would you, would you say that he has better ones? I know there's other great ones, but would you say any are better than this? No, I would say that this is better because yeah, he won another Academy award for his role as um, Vito Corleone because how in God's name did he age himself so perfectly? Well, that's insane. Like his demeanor and everything, but this is his most real. This was, you've seen people like this before and he brought it to life and he made it cinematic, which is so difficult because people, people often want realism in the films, but they forget that there's a big disconnect between reality and, and movies. And sometimes you know, you've got to play things differently in movies because it doesn't work well if you play it too realistically. But one of the few people who could sneakily dodge this is Marlon Brando. And again, we've either seen people like this or we've been people like this and he brought it to reality. No, this was, this is his best. I, I think more, a lot of people would agree with us when we say that this is his best. I think the only one other one that would be a contender would be Streetcar Named Desire. Um, but this is definitely, I think, for me, his best performance. It is, as you were saying, it's all about his face. It's every, every little infliction of his, his eyes, his eyebrows, his smile, his nose. You can see everything. And the fact that you can pinpoint exact emotions. Like, in acting class... They make you uh, break down your your scripts and your lines uh, about what your motivations are. So for, you know, you can have uh, a three-sentence line and each sentence has a different motivation and you're supposed to be able to get that across. Most people aren't that great at it. Marlon Brando, you can see the syllable 
when his <laughs> motivations are changing. I was uh, actually going to say syllable, so yeah, we're right on point there. Yeah, we're like, I would almost want to watch this movie just zoomed in on his face just to see how every every line, every word, every thought comes out of him in the most perfect way that like you feel like you want to be a a psychiatrist analyzing him it's that crazy uh and and the other thing about brando that's that's so great is that he made sure that he had no wasted lines if you know there was no such thing as a throwaway line to brando if he had a line it was going to connect to something else or reveal some more truth in the moment and and that's he does that so well in this film that's something he always did well in his career but this is something that he makes sure he's at the top absolute top of his game um now we're going to differ very slightly for best actress uh only in the sense of we both picked ladies from all about eve uh, I went with Ann Baxter, who played Eve, and you went with Betty Davis. Uh, so do you want to speak a little very briefly about Betty Davis? Well, I went into a lot about her performance before, so um, I'll keep it a little bit brief, and I'll use this opportunity as a reason why this movie works so well because of the two leads and their chemistry. So I can offer a little bit about... Betty Davis's character, and you can offer a little bit about Anne Baxter's character, and together we can see why they work so well. Betty Davis is the old. She is, oh, what's her name? Gloria Stanwyck's character in um, Sunset Boulevard. Oh yeah, um... that's the actress, though, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, uh, just making. Like... Feature. But she is that character, but without becoming deluded enough to want to kill. Norma you know. Desmond. There we go, Norma Desmond. <laughs> uh, and I'm ready uh, for my Gloria Swanson, sorry, not Barbara Stanwyck. Oh, no, I said Gloria Stanwyck. I, I, I mixed oh. up the two names. Swanson, <laughs> there we go. I knew it started with an S. Um, anyways, uh, she, is, she is that character, though, without the intention to kill. She's that character with letting letting the new generation come in and say okay you know what i can benefit from this but in the end she doesn't and she falls and she's gripping for that fame again and she plays a such a sly character but then in the end you realize that she's not sly it's and baxter's character which i think you'll go into that's the sly one and you could see her gripping onto her fame as she's falling down this cliff screaming and begging to be back on and you see a little bit of her insanity playing in when she realizes that she's going to no longer be famous that she's lost her opportunity in the lights and it's devastating i mean she's funny she's she's dry she's witty but then at this at the snap of a finger she instantly becomes this fallen person who you feel sorry for before you feel that you feel like she's this diva but I can't think of many movies or performances where you start to feel sorry for that diva and you go, okay, wait, hang on, we want her back. She's the sane one, bring her back. And to me, it's fully believable. She doesn't overstep her boundaries where she becomes unlikable. She's just, she is the fear that we all have that one day we will be irrelevant and we try so hard to stay relevant and it's not because of us, it's because of our circumstances that we are not. And I think she played that perfectly. And obviously, Betty Davis is a veteran actress, well-known, one of the greats of this era. And I think, like Brano, this is her best performance. Yeah. Uh, Betty Davis is fantastic. For me, I, I just went with 
Ann Baxter um, because I feel that she was the, the real lead in that film in All About Eve. And I also, like I was saying when we are talking about All About Eve, um, where I, I did, I really did enjoy Betty Davis. I thought she didn't have much of an arc and that's what, that's where it came in for me was Baxter's arc turning into this, uh, conniving con artist by the end of it and sort of leaving a, a wrecking ball, uh, of hatred towards her by the end of it. The fact that she was able to, you know, turn friends against each other and ruin careers and lives and all these sort of things while playing it so innocently. And you don't realize till the end um, what her secret motivation has been this whole time. That was never about uh, Betty Davis's character. It was always about herself and her own narcissistic tendencies. But you don't see that till the end when it all sort of unravels. Um, but wow like it, it was just it was so good um her like this this is a film that's you know has so many great female performances but it doesn't make it you know a, a female centric chick flick or whatever derogatory term you want to use because there is this is just a whole bunch of really powerful women getting their due absolutely and it's Again, it's it's just such a strong cast. I believe it's got the most nominations for female performances out of any film in, in Oscar history. And um, no question, it's deserving, especially for the two leads. Um, and as you said, Anne Baxter has a terrific arc. There's no doubt about that. Betty Davis has a terrific downfall. And that's why they play so well together, because it's the young, the young, wide-eyed experience or inexperienced actress looking for things to grip onto to become famous. And the old veteran who feels like, Hey, I've made it. I don't need to worry. And because of that, they keep a, a silent eye, despite the fact that they play a venomous character and they get shoved off to the side and they can never work their way back up. It is such a great representation of the old and the new. And again, as you said, it's done by a huge evolution of character through Anne Baxter and a huge, a huge refusal of of omitting the truth that Betty Davis has. So the two of them, as far as I'm, I'm concerned, are a terrific duo. Yeah. Um, now, I had the most difficult time coming up with an idea of who to give the best supporting actor award to. It basically came down to about four different guys for me, um, and one that I actually didn't even consider was the one that you went with. You went with John Ireland from All the King's Men, whereas I went uh, with Carl Meldon from On the Waterfront. Uh, so what was it about John Ireland that stood out for you? We didn't really talk about him uh, a ton when we were talking about All the King's Men. Yeah, I tried to keep it a little bit hush-hush so I can save it or preserve it for this moment. To me, he was kind of like... Um, Eve's character, except instead of having like, instead of having like something behind his motives, he was he was this wide-eyed person who saw this politician and said, "Gee, golly, Willikers, okay, let's let let's let's look into this person's life and and try and back behind him." You know, like he he's chosen me as as 
this person that can like help him in the long run. I want to do this because this this man is terrific. And you slowly see him get more and more cynical as he realizes, my God, okay, you know what? There's something wrong here. I've got to change this. And then you slowly start to see, oh my God, there's something slowly wrong with me. But I can't let that get, get in the way as much as everybody around me is going to try and make that a possibility. Now, John Ireland's performance is so strong because you don't feel like he's ever below the situation. Even when he's admiring Willie Stark's character, you know, he's always, he's always prominent enough to be an absolute essential moment of the scene. So when his character starts to try and put in a more demanding effort to change things and not just be a bystander, you truly believe it. You truly feel like, okay, I don't doubt this man for a second. He's clearly seen it all. He's clearly been experienced. He clearly sees fault within himself that he's trying to back away from. This man has motive. And John Ireland really, really drove that home. I thought he was the second best performance of that film easily. And I mean, my goodness, terrific performance. Yeah, he really was strong. Um I, I toyed with a few different people um, for for this role for this one, whether it was um, George Sander from All About Eve or um, Sesu uh, Kayakawa from uh, On the uh, Bridge on the River Kwai, uh, or even uh, Canton Floss from um, Around the World in Eighty Days, who I thought was pretty strong. But in the end, I went with Carl Malden, who played the priest in. Uh, on the waterfront, and he had, he just had a couple really great, powerful scenes, being the the voice of reason and conscience, uh, injecting life into Marlon Brando again. After you know he was feeling like a bum, it took this priest to sort of remind him that you know he's not a bum. You know there is no such thing as a bum if you don't want to be one. That you know you can you can be your own hero if you want to be. Uh, and there's this great scene where he's sort of giving a part eulogy, part cry for help uh, when he's uh, a guy who's been causing trouble for for the mobsters. Uh, they kill him off. I, pass it off as a work accident and Carl Malden comes and gives this great rousing speech of um, you if you know something you need to come forward and, and speak up about it because this is this is how you're all gonna end up eventually you're all gonna end up getting killed and for what for uh, the illusion of uh, a great union for the illusion of you know uh, being taken care of that that's not what's happening and he's being pelted with tomatoes and beer cans and they're bouncing off his head and he starts to bleed and you, you just have to be impressed by this and you have to wonder if these things were really being thrown at him because you know you see this steely determination of I'm not going to let this pain affect me and I'm, I'm here to say something and I'm going to get through this speech and the way that he influences Brando and that you see what an effect on, almost like, you know, he was basically, he's playing a priest whose title is father, um, 
And that's basically what he plays to Marlon Brando. He basically is the father figure for him since before that, the father figure was his older brother who's clearly let him down as far as, you know, forcing him to take a fall in the boxing match and things like that. So he finally gets a real father figure in his life. And our last award is for Best Supporting Actress, which was also quite a difficult one to pick. This was a, this was a great set of years for acting performances, where almost every film has uh, one of uh, like a marquee acting performance to look at. Um, you know, I just finished talking about Carl Mulder from On the Waterfront. You ended up choosing Eve Marie Saint also from On the Waterfront, uh, whereas I went uh, back to All About Eve and went with Celeste Home. Um, so how about you You continue on this On the Waterfront love fest?
Yeah, she she really was great. Um, I decided to go with Celeste Holm, um, not because I felt like the other people weren't worthy, but I thought that she just was a, a nice, refreshing, uh, had a nice, refreshing air about her and all about Eve. She played um, Betty Davis's best friend, uh, a character named Karen Richards, uh, and you know it's the type of friendship where sometimes you question why you're even friends with this person, and she sort of does a really good job keeping. Uh, Betty Davis's Margot Channing in check for at points being like, why are you getting so worked up? This is just a young girl. She's just a fan of yours. Calm down. And then by the end, being burned by Eve herself, um, being used, especially in there's a, a really great scene near the end where um, Karen and Eve are in the bathroom and, and Eve basically lays out all her cards and basically blackmails uh, Karen into uh, not doing anything and allowing her husband to cast Eve in a play. It's just a great, you know, back and forth uh, power struggle where Karen is clearly outmatched, but that doesn't mean she doesn't still give a great performance in this. Uh, and she's just sort of a, a bit of, of lightheartedness to, to break up a lot of the, the backstabbing, even though she does her own backstabbing um, near the end. Well, she she was great in Gentleman's Agreement as well. She had a she had a part in that where she wasn't the main female, but she had a, a pretty strong role backing up um, and sort of being a, a bit of the the heart in that film too. Outside of uh, John Garfield, um, so she's someone that you know I wish had had better parts. She's still acting today. She's still alive and acting, but she isn't getting the same sort of uh, great roles that she used to when she was younger. Even then, it seemed like she was a bit of um, a two-trick a two pony where those were the only ones that, big parts that she got, which is a bit of a shame because she she's such a, a life and energy to the to the roles that she brings. Um, I might have to try to find some hidden gems of hers. Uh, but there you have it. Those are our awards. Oh, and sorry, I, I did make a mistake. Um, she did, unfortunately, die in, in 2012 at the age of 95. Um, but she it looks like she's appearing posthumously in a movie that is coming out this year called College Debts. I have no idea what that is. But up until 2012, when she died, she was still appearing in uh, in in both TV and in films. Um, but yeah, we, uh, this was actually 
those those were all of our our picks for for the awards, and it was actually quite difficult to to come to these conclusions. At least for me, I was debating back and forth, and, and really, I think we could have gone with our our second picks for all the categories, and it still would have been very worthy award winners. Uh, where can all of our listeners find you, Andreas? You can find me on Twitter at Andreas Babs. And you can find me on Twitter at DGAPA. Uh, and please go to liveandlimbo.com where you'll see all the show notes and uh, and links to some of the stuff that we've been talking about. Um, and music this week is uh, once again from Justin Dezuka. He was featured in the first episode as well. He is a Toronto singer. And uh, music from uh, from this week is from his uh, album Ulysses, which just came out last year, I believe. Uh, so make sure you you see the show notes so that way you can you can check out more of his music. He's a, he's a really talented artist. Um, that was fun. That was the first three decades of Oscar winners. We're about to move into the fourth. It might not, it'll probably be a little while till we get to that because we're coming up to Oscar season and, you know, we might get a little sidetracked by trying to do special episodes about, uh, about stuff like that and, and all these great movies that are coming out. Uh, but I look forward to continuing these. Are you, are you still enjoying this as much as I am? No, absolutely. This is a very unique experience because I'm not just watching these films or getting an understanding of how, you know, films evolved, let's say, but it's definitely defining my taste in films. And it's further challenging me into understanding how I feel about cinema and trying to understand why these films won or what made them special for their time period. Are they special now? While I am also discovering all of these new films that I want to buy personally. Like, um, I don't know about you, but I've got a separate list now. Where it's like, I've got all of these films that I want to purchase now, even if they're not like my perfect rated ones, you know, a lot of hidden gems, like all the King's men I want to purchase. I want to purchase the criterion release of Hamlet. I want to, to go back a little bit, maybe purchase some of the older films like wings. I definitely want to purchase now. I'm discovering all of these great films and American in Paris. I definitely want to purchase that. And yeah, it's, it's definitely a great experience. If you're truly a cinematic or cinema academic, you know, where you study these, you study film and you want to understand how all of this goes, or if you just want to watch movies, if you just want to watch movies, it's also a pretty entertaining experience as well. It's been, Nothing but a success so far, and I can't wait until we get into the really aesthetic eras, which we're just about to actually when this when we hit the sixties and seventies. So I am truly excited for that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we'll leave on that note. Thank you so much for listening, uh, and uh, until next time, take care.